0: That's joinmidi.com dot com.
1: You're listening to Why We Do What
2: We Do. Uh, hey, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, uh, this is Abraham, and this is Ryan. Oh, uh, Why We Do What We Do. Ooh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to start by, uh, I'm just going to ask you, Ryan, looking right in front of you, what do you see?
1: I see show notes. Okay. And a computer.
2: (laughs) Perfect. And Um, you. And me. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What do I see?
1: Ooh, uh, maybe show notes, but in a different spot. Okay. And me, hopefully.
2: And then uh, what does our listener who's listening to this right now see? I
1: have no clue. Probably a road. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Be, they're, they're driving, I'd, yeah. I'd be willing to bet there's that or they're walking their their dog.
2: Yeah. That's my two guesses. Okay. Um, how about where are you from?
1: I am from Tonopah, Nevada. Where am I from? You are from Nebraska? Yeah, actually. Yeah.
2: Um, how about if I were you, where would I be from?
1: Ooh, I would. If,
2: <laughs> what was that? If I were you, where would I be from? You'd be from Tonopah, Nevada. Oh, and where would you be from? I'd be from Nebraska. Nice. All right. Where at Nebraska? Lincoln. Lincoln. That's where I was born. That's anyway. right. Yeah. All right. Now, if you... Friends for like 10 years. I don't know that. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come up. All right. Uh, if you were to um, if you were to find a hundred dollar a hundred dollar bill on the ground, how would you feel? Stoked. All right. If I were to find a hundred dollar bill on the ground, how do you think I would feel? Hopefully
1: stoked. And I don't why? know how much you're like rolling right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> why do you think I would be excited about that? Why? Yeah. Why would I, why would be excited about finding a hundred dollar bill? Why would you think that I would feel that? Why do you do what you do? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Man, because like I would be stoked. So I'd assume maybe you're stoked too.
2: Yeah. Right. Like that, that seems like a reasonable assumption to sort of make on that. So as if anybody has, has heard any kind of exercise like this, what we're talking about right now is we're uh, we're asking questions to sort of take one another's perspective. Yeah. Mm Or so we're taking on this, uh, taking on a little perspective, about perspective taking, ooh, and so uh, meta. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's really great about this, I think, is the topic. I mean, this is honestly, this is one that I was most afraid of that we've done so far because really? there's so much to that you could talk about. There's so much history. There's so many elements to it, and there's so many implications of doing it. Yeah, but. What's great about, I think, the fact that we're being able to take this on is this was a major line of research, uh, at least for you, for a little while. You did your thesis on this, I believe? Yeah, (laughs) correct. Well, so what's great is that we can – we can start just by describing what we mean when we say perspective taking, right? Mm -hmm. And so generally the sort of over like the big definition, the big concept here when we're talking about perspective taking is the ability to infer what someone else is thinking or feeling or interpreting in some kind of situation. Okay. So that's going back to that idea of if I found a hundred dollar bill, how would I feel? If you're not the one finding the $100 bill, you're not answering how you would feel if I found a $100 bill. Like if your answer was you'd be jealous, then Mm -hmm. that wouldn't make sense, right? That would show that you didn't understand that my situation was different from yours. Um, But most people can do this relatively easily. And I think it's worth talking about the relative components of this particular skill, right? Correct.
1: Yeah. So I got really interested in this because of actually the it was, I mean, there was a particular video that we'll have to link um, that was uh, Dr. Steve Hayes, actually, that was on, you know, a couple episodes ago, however many of that was. And he was talking about the role of perspective taking and how they were doing some research. And that's really what set the tone for me. I believe it was in that where they were talking about, hey, if you're going to be helping somebody, understanding their perspective probably helps. And I was just like, holy cow, that probably matters a lot. <laughs> like <laughs> if I'm going to be in any sort of helping profession anything socially that I want to do to make the world a better place, like understanding their position is going to help me understand, uh, or maybe perform better. Like we talked about with assessments. Right. Sure. Um, and it can also help me when it comes to designing, understanding the research, where it came from. I mean, it informs how we try to approach this podcast and talk about it. All of a sudden I was just like, okay, perspective taking is a golden thing. It relates to everything. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think it goes quite that far. Um, maybe I, I kind of way or sway back and forth on that quite a bit. But yeah, I was like, okay, I need to dive into this and understand what it is. And I guess the starting point would be, it really requires the difference like you were highlighting between me uh, or I, where I'm sitting and you, yeah. or, our listener. Or sort of in,
2: like me and everyone else. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to be able to distinguish and by distinguish, I mean, uh, basically verbally, and we'll get yep. into some of that, but you have to uh, be able to Um, behave with respect to the fact that you are different from everyone else that's around you and everything else. And that what you interact with is unique to you, whereas what everyone else interacts with is unique to them. Right. Yes.
1: And so what was most interesting, I think to me, is I realized that that's not a point, right? Like you can't put a finger on that. Yeah. So the, the one thing that I think is really interesting about this is there's not a physical spot for it, right? Like my eye is different. It's your you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And our listeners. And so it's a thing that when I first ran across, it, I was like, OK, wait, how do you teach this? Because I was so used to teaching, you know, like objects and things and yeah. in a classroom. And I was like, how do I teach? This is I because like I could it was weird from my perspective to teach that. But it's sure. also weird to teach and get correctly.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, one thing I was I was also interested in because I said this is this is a verbal distinction. This is a languaging thing where I'm I, I am being able to label in some capacity that I am me and that everyone else is everyone else. And I wonder to, if there is anything inside of other languages where that distinction is not necessarily clear, whether or not their ability to perspective take or the extent to which they experiencing perspectives of others is shifted by their language around, how you how uniquely the individual stands out in that given culture? Like, what if? And I don't know if this is the case, but what if there's a language where there is no such thing as I? The only um, noun that exists is we. Yeah, and we always refers to the group. Would they still have the same type of perspective when it comes to tasks where they're adopting someone else's view of things, um, or is it the fact that they sort of come language ready to do that, and yeah. it's not even something that they really learn? Right.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm unsure for sure.
2: Okay. Well, I'm sure that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I know like the research line that I got into, I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but it was, it really kind of started up really recently. They were looking at it at older research lines that we'll talk about from a new perspective. And they started that around like t- early 2000s. Wow. Recent. Yeah. And I know one primary agenda of theirs was like, okay, let's, let's start looking at this culturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Hayes actually talked about it a little bit. Like there's, there's differences there and we need to really understand
2: those. Right. Um, and differences it comes, in form, but not function. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So just to make sure that everyone's sort of still with us on what we mean when we're talking about perspective taking, I I, I had another example I wanted to give in terms of like, this is again, it's that inferring thing that making the distinction. So imagine you as the listener, how does someone else feel not you, but someone else that you might know, how would someone else feel if they lost something that was valuable to them? Like what would their reaction to that situation be? And then ask yourself, why do you think that that's the case? And if you're doing perspective taking, you might then be able to relate to the fact that like that's maybe how you would feel if you lost something valuable, right? Um, And maybe you've already lost something valuable, so you've had that experience, so you can relate to that. And so then that the implications for that just continue to sort of cascade, looking at every time that you've had some type of experience, you can probably relate to that with other people, which we kind of see a lot of. Mm -hmm. People who have suffered from particular I, you know, any kind of thing that could happen to them in life, either medically or, or for some, or some kind of disaster or, or anything that might happen, that they tend to be people who go out and then participate in the groups where they have fundraisers and try and raise awareness and that sort of thing, um, because then it becomes so much more relevant that they're in a place to be taking the perspective of those people. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting too is this seems to relate to this idea of sort of the golden rule of the whole treat others how they want to be, tre- how you want to yeah. be treated sort of thing, which we've sort of found is not really a great rule um, because it's a lot more appropriate to say, treat others how they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Because like, I like to think of the fact that like, I like a particular type of music. And if you put on music that you like, not necessarily you, but someone else, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. very yeah. different from music from me. Like they put on their music for me. because like, oh, he'll like this. And I'm like, covering my ears because I'm like, I don't hear this, (laughs) you know, like you're treating me how you want to be treated, but that's not how I want to be treated. Right. So it's treating someone how they want to be treated basically. But anyway, it is this interesting idea of that is, that is actually what perspective taking is, is not treating them how you want to be treated. Although you can understand how they might feel in a situation if you have that experience, but being able to put, put yourself in their shoes and be able to adopt the point of view that they might have in that point of view, not from, I mean, you can't completely remove yourself from your own experience experiences in history, but you're not putting yourself in their shoes as if you were you standing in their position, but if you were them coming to it with their experiences and their um, particular interpretation of that type of situation.
1: Yeah. Or very similar things, right? So like, uh, I guess a shared history or like having very similar histories, I think is very important here. Yeah. So I can understand someone's perspective a lot easier, presumably if I've had very similar upbringing and history that I can relate to.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There was somebody who did some research a while back that they they called mind reading and mm-hmm. sort of as a joke, but they were legitimately looking at if people spend enough time together, then they sort of have this experience of reading each other's minds or being able to know what the other person's thinking in a given situation mm-hmm. because they have shared so much of their developmental history together mm-hmm. that those type of experiences that they've shared predict the same type of reactions that they have.
1: Yeah. And I've seen on some like YouTube videos of decision trees that are reported by mentalists on the street, like. Doing street oh magic, yeah that like will say that they go through like oh like how long have you known each other Oh, 20 years okay like that's probably something where I can do some mind reading stuff as opposed to my card trick or something you know right like, yeah yeah um I don't know the degree to which that's true but that's um, a great thing to tie in I like I'm it. extremely interested in shared histories and to the extent to which they. Um, allow people to come together and do really cool stuff.
2: Yeah, um, totally. You know, and yeah. well just haven't sorted that out. Especially as it relates to perspective taking, right? Exactly. Now another thing I like to point out before we get into more of the sort of research, which is where you're really going to have an opportunity to mm-hmm. to show me up on this <laughs> is pointing out what perspective taking is not. Because I've definitely seen some people who they thought they approach perspective taking in a way that is not really what perspective taking is, mm-hmm. right? Putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Which is that I've heard this thing where someone doesn't agree with me, then it's because they're not taking my perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's so not perspective taking. especially like if you are in a position where you're saying you're not agreeing with me, therefore you're not taking my perspective. Then you are like by definition, not taking their perspective as like what exactly is what you're doing in the situation. This is yeah. not a weapon you get to throw at someone and be like, Hey, you're not perspective taking whack, you know, and slap yeah. them in the face.
1: Cite Every like, Facebook argument ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All the YouTube comments. You're, and, you're wrong because I'm right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it can be found all over the place there. Yeah. I guess in more recent news, you'll see this sometimes thrown at presidents or other figures like that. I'm not going to just gonna say that person in general. Um, and it's just like, I usually question, like, what did they not have the ability to take perspectives or is it something else? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we get into that a little bit later. So, okay. What's next?
2: Um, well, I think we can start talking about the, how has this starts to develop? Like, are we just born doing perspective taking? Is this something we start to learn? Like, you know, what's the sort of history there?
1: So yeah, I'm going to speak in a little bit of generalizations, but just hear me out as we go through this whole episode. So generally it emerges around the ages of three to five. That's my understanding of the literature. However, I will immediately note after that, like this is generalization and it's learned skill and it's been shown to be more learned than previously thought in the psychological research and thus like it can be shown much earlier than three years of age and you could start seeing even the it's like definitely earlier Um, but it can develop much later based on your experience in the world
2: you know it's something we can say about the word generally and what we mean by things like this when we say generally it occurs from three to five this is something that's uh, useful in a lot of different ways when we talk about things like developmental milestones which I hope to do an episode talking about some of those in in the future Mm. but um, is the The idea that what we mean by generally is that these are the type of circumstances that arise under the current, I guess, culture and system that's in place. Mm-hmm. So, you know, given uh, if you were to sort of visit your uh, average household, the kind of ways that they would facilitate the development of their children would predict that they would start developing these particular skills at about this time. Because mm-hmm. there are cultures where like they don't really emphasize language, at least not in children, until much later in life. And so children don't really start talking all that much until they get to be older. Whereas that's different in the United States where talk is emphasized pretty early on and maybe in other other countries, it might be emphasized even earlier still, but that will change then when and how this emerges. So it might be that this doesn't emerge until six to seven in a culture where that is not something that's practiced. So that's, I just like to sort of build in that discussion about what we mean when we say generally, and I know you said it's a generalization and that's okay. Like it's okay to have those generalizations. And we're not saying that this is just going to occur as something because, well, time happened, You know, it's going to be that this is the way that things unfold in the current circumstances that are most commonly available to people. All right. So having said all of that, let's go ahead and transition now into discussion about some of the the research and where this really began to develop um, a few decades ago because you're very familiar with this area.
1: Yep. So I did a really thorough search and review and completed my thesis in the spring of 2013. Thus, uh, since I haven't kept up perfectly, but I do kind of read on these sort of areas. So. Searched pretty extensively and found that in 1978, Premack and Woodruff were the first to coin the term theory of mind.
0: It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.
1: And this is where really, I would say, a culture of scientists came together and we're trying to study things that are perspective-taking. And I guess, like we talked about in the past, it's like a construct or a, a understanding of perspective-taking skills, this theory of mine. Right. But there was also a lot of research was being done prior to that around these. It's usually something that's very interesting to a whole lot of people before it's coined. And those people were, I believe, were Flavil and some others were around, like researching a lot of these topics, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I found some articles that were sort of precursors to this general line of research that went back into like the 60s and 50s. Um, And I think that people have been talking about this for longer than that, although not calling it perspective taking, and not calling it theory of mind, Mm -hmm. but they were noticing um, early on what was going on is that it it was interesting that people were not always interpreting these situations in the same way. And especially looking at, at younger kids, like, we noticed the whole thing of when kids wave and they wave backwards. I'm like, well, that is what the hand looks like to them when you're waving at them. So they're not looking at it as like their palm is facing outward. Their palm is facing inward because they see your palm when they wave. Right. I've actually
1: never noticed that.
2: Oh yeah. 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 I need to watch. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't always happen, but, but that's one thing that can, that can develop. And and another one is that when kids will, uh, they did some studies around where they would have like, they would hide something and say, Oh, does this person know where it is? And that sort of thing. But, but beyond that, it was even things like hide this from someone and then they hide it from themselves, but where the other person can clearly see it. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, you clearly don't understand the fact that like what you can see and what that person can see are different things. Right. Yep. And so noticing that some of these uh, research studies began to develop. Again, I saw some that looked like they were as early as the fifties and sixties, but one of the ones that preceded this, um, where it, it was published in the same year as this article, but it seems like the study itself preceded it by the authors were uh, Flavel, Shipstead, and Croft, the three. And this was published in 1978 again in the journal Child Development. And they were specifically looking at this thing where they would ask children to hide toys from other children. And it was that they would, they had like a screen in the room that was sort of an opaque. Uh, barrier of some kind Mm -hmm. and that they would these children were able to go and hide things behind the screen they could move the screen in front of things and they could accurately report on who could see what and this is between uh, children ages two and a half to three and a half
3: cool
2: um yeah so like that really emphasized and showed uh, some of this research around like do you understand what i can see what you can see how i can change things so that you can't see them that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and showing that like pretty young kids were able to do this
1: yeah so these research lines We're coming together, and it looks like kind of more formally set up as a framework in 1978. They were starting much prior, and I haven't read into all of Flavel's work. If I did, I forgot it, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) there essentially was this need for getting this a little more systematized and organized, and that's where Theory of Mind comes in, and so that original Premack and Woodruff article 1978 was a study in which they were trying to determine whether chimpanzees had the ability to understand human goals. So this,
2: this was theory of mind, not of like with humans, but to see if this existed in, um, in animals that were not humans.
1: Yeah. Do they also have a theory of mind as we do essentially.
2: Right. And then we didn't really say this, but I mean, theory of mind is, is another name essentially for perspective taking the definition is being, you know, having the ability to attribute to or infer mental states to oneself and yeah. others, such as their beliefs, desires, their knowledge, their uh, emotions, and understand that those uh, perspectives are different from your own.
1: Yeah. And to be able to acknowledge, yeah, perfect. To acknowledge that they're different. And then ideally also be able to like predict them as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you haven't been able to notice, like things like empathy and such maybe under this may be underlying those sort of skills. And so since the initial study, uh, it was argued back and forth, like many things in academic research journals as to whether or not um, the studies were sufficient and more studies were conducted. And it was particularly this Premack and Woodruff's article was looking at chimpanzees and their ability to kind of infer these beliefs and such. And it was the fact that they failed the false belief test, which we'll get into, that led researchers to conclude essentially that primates in general uh, can engage in some tasks that are part of theory of mind, but since they can't complete all of them, um, that in general, the theory of mind doesn't occur in non-humans is what's been kind of established and set up.
2: Which kind of makes sense too, because as we've mentioned in several places now, and I think we even brought this up in this episode, is human as humans, we just deal with language in a completely different way, um, than other animals and their systems of communication. So if theory of mind is related to, as I mentioned earlier, it's sort of being able to have language around things like distinguishing myself from yourself and myself from other people, then if that, that same type of language system does not exist in animals, it would be surprising to be able to find all of the same elements of that in, in those animals. Mm
1: Yeah, so this false belief test was kind of the the keyword and the buzzword to kind of follow in the '60s, '70s, and such. Now, in 1999 is where this kind of culmination of the five levels that I mentioned came together, and that was in an article by Howland. And so, and there,
2: are these are these the like still pretty well used today and regarded to as being the levels that they think of?
1: Yes, unless there's something I missed in the last year. Um, I don't. I, this isn't my research line right anymore, but it's been solid. Okay. Okay. So level one, I'm just going to describe these and maybe we can see what your response is and chat it out a little bit. All right. So these are me summarizing some things from uh, my thesis. Actually, I think it's the best way to describe it. So level one was simple visual perspective taking and entails the understanding that people can see different views of the same event. So uh, let's say you have some sort of picture and it's sitting on one side like a photograph yeah and those things that we don't really print anymore um right (laughs) but if i had it in front of you abraham uh i would be able to see the picture what would you see on the other side just white yeah probably so ideas uh can they understand that we can see different views of the same event.
2: And that goes back to the first thing I asked you at the beginning of the episode is like, what do you see and what do I see? Mm-hmm. And like, I can't see your screen, but when mm-hmm. you, you could describe your screen to me mm-hmm. um, and you can't see my screen, but you can assume that that's what I'm, you know, what I'm looking at.
1: Yeah. So if I took that same picture for level two and I placed it on the table and let's say it was a picture of us uh, at a wedding event, right? And we're all sitting down if it's facing me for the listeners, I'd be able to see everybody sitting up. But for you, what would that look like? You'd see
2: people- Basically hanging upside down. Yeah,
1: and so it's, it entails understanding that people can see the same object um, or event in different ways.
2: Another one that I've seen is that like, if you have two people who are looking at a statue of like a person, Mm -hmm. and so one person is on the front facing end of the statue and the other person's on the back, the back part of the statue, the front being able to understand the person who's on the front would be able to potentially recognize who the statue was. And the person in the back might have no idea because they can't see the face of the person that they're Mm -hmm. looking at. Um, And that's, that's one test I've actually seen in this.
1: Yeah. So you just described level two. Um, That is complex visual perspective. Taking is kind of how we describe it. And so level three, understanding the principle that seeing leads to knowing. So this entails the understanding that people can only know things that they have directly experienced. So for example, let's say that I grab uh, some coffee off of the counter and I place it in the studio where we're recording, you're hanging out outside, right? Since you are out of sight, and like our assumption here is you're out of sight and you can't see that I placed it placed in the room. If I were to ask you where it is, you would be able to say, oh, it's in the studio because I saw you place it in there. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. So okay. what you're saying basically is that my experience of where the object was um, from what I saw is going to be different from where it might be depending on what you saw.
1: Yeah, but you can infer that you know where it is in general because you saw it and therefore you know it. So an example of this would be, let's say that Joe grabs an apple from the counter and he places it in the fridge. Meanwhile, Jenny is in another room out of sight. Um, If asked who knows where the apple is, the observer would say that Joe knows where the apple is. But since Jenny wasn't there she would know where to look. Does that make sense?
2: Would not know where to look. Would right?
1: not know where to look, right. correct. Because she wasn't there to be able to see that it was moved off the counter into the fridge.
2: So if you have this level of perspective taking that you would be able to um, answer the question regarding those two people, Jenny and Joe, Yep. and you'd be able to say, Joe knows where the apple is, Jenny does not. Yep. And that is you demonstrating that you understand that they have different perspectives.
1: Yep, that seeing leads to knowing in quotes is how it's usually talked about. Got it. All right, so level four is adding a little bit of complexity in that you could predict actions based on a person's knowledge. So with that, for example, if Joe saw Jenny place an apple in the refrigerator an observer would be able to accurately predict that Joe would look in the refrigerator for the apple.
2: Right. So, um, his perspective was that he saw where the apple went. So although there's the whole scene and basically what this is saying is if you have the knowing component of where it is, Mm -hmm. then you would also be able to predict that if they know something, then they will behave as if they know that thing. Mm-hmm. And if uh, they don't know something, then they the next thing that they will do will be because they don't know where the... So going back to the apple, if Joe has seen where the apple is, then he knows. Yes. And if he knows where it is, then you can predict that if he goes looking for the apple, he's going to look where he saw it go. Yes. So it's, it's the same thing as knowing, except um, being able to extrapolate that from what can you do with the thing that you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand both that they know something and then be able to understand what they will do given that they know the thing they know
1: yes correct and so level five brings us to the last level of complexity and so that's understanding false beliefs so this describes the ability of someone to accurately predict what another another person is likely to do based on another person's limited vantage point so like what they can see so this is like they don't have all of the information essential to them okay So there's some kind of hidden things. So for example, an observer watches Joe place a drink in the refrigerator and walk out of the room. Next, Jenny walks into the room and moves the drink to the cupboard. She hides it, let's say. Then Joe walks back into the room to get his drink from the refrigerator. At that point, if the observer is asked to predict where Joe would actually look for this item, what would your guess be?
2: Um, that it should be that he would look in the refrigerator because that's where he saw it go last.
1: Yes, exactly. So they should be able to say Joe would look there and not be tricked, I would say, by the cue, the most recent cue, which would be that it's actually in the cupboard.
2: Right, because Joe wasn't actually there for that. So you have to know that what Joe's experience... So this is related to the first example of the, like, your experience being simply that you weren't there, right? Mm -hmm. And this one is like... You were there, but then things changed. And so the belief that you have is going to stay the same because you weren't there when the change happened. So Joe's still going to think he's in the fridge because he wasn't there when it got moved. But if you're lacking this level of perspective taking, you would assume that you would predict that he would go to the cupboard. Yep. Even though he doesn't have the knowing that the apple or that the juice or whatever has been moved to the cupboard.
1: Yeah, perfect. So those are the five different levels and these levels were a way to just like anything else, it's a concept like this, to be able to talk about it in a shared way as a community of scientists and such, and understand how to start putting some measures around to people perspective take, and whatnot. And, There's two things that I noticed. Either people measure all levels, one through five, or they pick three through five to kind of measure. So it looks like it's been kind of agreed that three through five of those levels are more of the perspective-taking, like core ones that are harder to develop. Interesting. Um, But in general, developmental models originally tend to account for this acquisition of perspective-taking skills to be some sort of uh, function of like uh, getting older or spending more time in the world. So yeah. as you aged, you were able to do this better.
2: So your body's got more cells in it. You can perspective take now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. And so, I mean, it makes sense from a developmental standpoint. That's how those things were looked at. But I would say that although this was the tendency then, I don't think it is much now. And there has been some acknowledgements as early or late. I don't know what you would, how you kind of talk about in the, the 90s and 2000s of like, hey, maybe you can move these things um, a bit from those developmental camps. Now, the other side is this behavioral tradition, which is primarily focused on how to teach it. So, like I said, in the early 2000s, we talked about this in the past when we talk about language um, and our views on language, I guess, that we hold of it's relating and whatnot. That view was started working on really walking out this line from a researcher named McHugh. And it was in around 2004 where there's a lot of articles that started being published around this, but it is relatively new. And these were the ones that I studied from and the kind of camp I came from when I was trying to understand how to teach this sort of stuff. Right. So McHugh worked on using this false belief and like, could you use this in research to understand how to teach perspective taking, but also kind of confirmed like, hey, over time, these things are easier for people that are older and more mature, but it it is a generalization at that point too.
2: So basically making the assumption that one, this is something that is learned. Um, throughout life. Two, Mm -hmm. that it's something that can be taught if it wasn't learned through natural circumstances. And three, that this is linked to language and therefore language can be used to teach it and is necessary condition for it to develop.
1: Yep, correct. And so different populations, I guess, that it has been specifically focused on, um, and there may even be misconceptions on, are uh, worthy of discussion here. So autism is one of those. It is often seen like, oh, it this generalization of people with um, I think it was Abby who was it that noticed like mentioned this in the Facebook. Can you check it out real quick? Mm-hmm. Someone mentioned like, oh, the the ability of people with autism to not be able to take uh, perspective of others is usually is generalization. It's like, no, that's not always true. It may be that there's some application in helping that population out and teaching them.
0: If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.
1: How to see it, but not everyone experiences that.
2: Yeah, Abby said specifically, for example, people, um, quote, people with autism can't perspective take, unquote, it's a myth, but where did it come from? And what is actually true, how is perspective taking measured and taught? Which is a great question.
1: Yes. And so I don't know the exact like point in which that came from, like who said and started it um, yeah. by any means, but I have heard it myself work in that area.
2: Yeah. So um, Simon Baron Cohen is a researcher in the cognitive field. And I know that in an article he published, and I want to say 1983, maybe. Um, and so a, a few years after the, the, the term theory of mind was coined um, in that other article. And, um, and he specifically talked about that, What was missing in the repertoire of an individual who had an autism diagnosis, or at least one of the important things that was missing, was their theory of mind. He Mm -hmm. was saying this was lacking. He also suggested this might be lacking in children with ADHD. Mm -hmm. And they did have some data from research that they had done to, uh, to indicate that that might be the case. Now what's important here is this is not actually a diagnostic criteria for autism. Yes. what that means is that just because you have autism does not mean that one of the symptoms of autism is that you are, have an inability to engage in perspective taking. Mm-hmm. It, what happens is that um, one of the features that can be present in an autism diagnosis is that there is a, a delay in language development. And as we've said, because language is so critical to the development of theory of mind, if there's a, de- if, if is the important thing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If there's a delay in language development, then there's also likely going to be a delay in the perspective taking uh, development. Now, another problem here is that just because language develops does not necessarily mean that a fully intact perspective taking repertoire or theory of mind repertoire will yep. also develop at a commensurate or equal rate. Yeah. Right. And so.
1: Those things like uh, the extent to which you have a shared history with someone or how often you're practicing practicing this sort of thing, like definitely comes into play
2: then. Right. And again, this comes back to what is likely the case is both what is going on for that particular individual with respect to what level of disability might be impacting them, as well as what kind of circumstances are avail- available to them along their developmental trajectory that would allow them to capitalize on the, what might, Foster the development of a perspective taking or theory of mind skill set.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So, well said. This this kind of, that's our theory of mind wrap up, I guess. Those are the levels. Um, it is still around. I guess my summary is the behavioral psychology tradition looked at really trying to walk out a line of how can you teach these sort of things. We'll get into that when it comes to um, a little bit later in this episode. So, I think there's some other things that are worthy of discussion. And that is, Uh, I guess when it comes to activism and trying to influence on a cultural level, like I think a lot of people try to include this perspective taking into their agendas and how they go about it. Yeah. Um, As well as it seems all religions have some sort of common theme of trying to uh, focus on perspective taking, whether it's for the better or for the worse, right? Like all humans are equal and should be treated the same versus, uh, they are not us sort of things.
2: Yeah. There can be certainly an us versus them mentality. Yeah. That can come out of of perspective taking in and of itself.
1: Yeah. And that's why I guess why I'm still particularly interested in it because it's core to not only understanding each other, but also being able to influence to do better in the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this comes back to a discussion we've had previously in discussing sort of the morally difficult position that we're in understanding this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that we even, even being able to look at things where it's people we disagree with and understand like, Hey, I get where this can come from mm-hmm. and you're wrong. Like, and that's okay. It's yeah. okay to have that position. And it's that whole, like looking at If someone, for example, um, in the United States, we recently had an election, got a new president. It was kind of um, it was a pretty radical change from where things had been. A lot of people were very upset with that. And their reaction to that was to go after people who were in support of the new um, administration administration that came in. Yeah. And so um, what that demonstrated was a lack of perspective taking on that part of like, hey, these are people, too. You know, like like we're not what I think one of the things that was big that could have been learned out of that situation is like, this is an ideal time to learn to be compassionate toward one another. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and to develop if we're lacking more of that theory of mind perspective taking.
1: Yeah. Or perhaps it's not a, a lacking, right? Like it's pretty complex. It could be that, um, like we said that it hasn't quite mastered or it has been generalized into that context. Um, so there's something about learning how to do it in different contexts. Like,
2: Maybe it just doesn't feel important yeah, to somebody. Like, yeah, you
1: know? and you're so emotionally charged in some of those situations that it's uh, maybe not your typical thought process, right, or your steps in which you go about analyzing things.
2: Well, I think it, it's probably reasonable to say that you, uh, it, you, if you just go around doing perspective taking all day long, then you'll have a perfect life and the world will be a hunky-dory place where everything is perfect. Yeah. Right? That's not necessarily the prescription for this. I think what's, look, what's useful in looking at this as a skill set is this can be a a type of skill that can help you in a lot of different areas of life under the circumstances that it's relevant to. Yep. And that it's something that is it's to have it be a part of your activities can have beneficial outcomes.
1: And having a little bit too much of that could also be debilitating, right?
2: Yeah. And I mean, just thinking about the fact that if you spend so much of your time, being inside of the position of everyone around you, then it's very, very possible, if not likely that you're going to have a lower quality of life because you are not participating in things that are important for you and your, your life. Mm -hmm. Um, if you are, you know, if you are willing to, so like throw yourself in these circumstances that you don't want to be in and they're not, not really in line with your values because it's sort of like, well, like I need, I need a perspective take, I need a perspective take and get yourself to a point where any emotional trauma that someone else suffers is just as great for you. Like that's, that's pretty hard. That's a, that's a heavy burden to try and carry. Oh, for sure. Um, And, and not only that, but every problem that exists is also a problem for you. Like that just takes the normal sort of life circumstances that already make it challenging to get through some of the difficulties that can be thrown at you. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, multiply it by any number you can think of because it's every person, you know, you're trying to put yourself in that position. And, that can get in the way of like really leaving, leading a a valued life.
1: For sure. And we already talked about the fact that people could take, not take a perspective and it could be misunderstood as not agreeing. Right. Right. Somebody. Um, But I also think there's another thing here, which is just because someone doesn't seem to take a perspective, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not taking perspectives. It might be that they just don't care.
2: And it could be, and um, it, it could be they don't care. I think it could be that there are other circumstances that make it seem like it's not a good idea in yes. that particular place. Um, it could be that, like, you're taking the perspective of a group that's different from the one that other people want you to be taking the perspective yeah. of. And so, like, it's not that you're not doing it, it's you're just doing it differently. Or, yeah. or you're, maybe it's not that you can't do it. It, maybe, mm-hmm. it might be that you're not doing it or you're doing it differently than other people would like you to be doing it. Yep.
1: If there's one thing I've learned is I get more business and stuff in my life going on and things that I care about, um, I'm doing more, but I also have to communicate those sort of things. And sometimes you just don't communicate them and it can be seen as, oh, you're not like taking the perspectives of others. And it's like, no, I'm just prioritizing what to communicate. Um, and I need to readjust what I'm prioritizing. Right. Right. Okay, so we already talked about that this is important for empathy, but we had another listener uh, comment on Facebook about problem solving and how to kind of approach those sort of things, right? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the areas I guess it was referenced for us to talk about is talk aloud problem solving. Yeah. Have you have you worked with that much?
2: Yeah, it's this is kind of fun. Um, and this uh, we should actually do a deep dive into where this comes from because I don't I don't have the history of it you know immediately available to me. Um, but what's kind of fun about this is and actually using it, it is what it sounds like talk aloud problem solving. It's when faced with a problem, the difference between thinking about it and talking about your reasoning as you go through it is actually really profound, both as yeah. someone who's doing it and who's someone who's listening. helping. Yeah, listening and yeah. helping someone else work through it. Um, we use this a lot when teaching and say like, um, let's take a simple math problem, for example, like you have to divide this multi-digit number by this multi-digit number. Um, tell me the steps that you need to go through. And they are go, okay, well, I want to try and round this one so that this one, I'm going to round this one so it can multiply into this and then I can cross out the zeros. And, yep. and, and like if they're going through that and you're kind of listening, okay, okay, I see that. Okay, now I see where you got that answer because you follow this, this logical sequence. And now I can give you some information to help change Mm -hmm. that. But what's kind of cool about that too, especially if you're thinking about um, the perspective taking both as the person who's teaching or being the listener in that case, um, and being, and that changes for you, uh, Uh how you will guide the way that they go about doing that. But it also changes, um, for that um again this is the iu distinction right of what you're doing what i'm doing what you're predicting what you're going to do that sort of thing but i think also inside of this is is using that specifically even in teaching problem solving like okay i want you to think about this person over here um this happened to them what do you think they're going to do next why yeah and then have them again talk through it and the same sort of thing is available here where it's so maybe the first time they've practiced really walking that out and really trying to discover for themselves what might be going on, and then that gives you the opportunity to see that sort of skill set develop.
1: Yeah, and I've enjoyed how it kind of makes it to where you have to engage in these sort of things. Um, and I'm I've always been curious, like as the person solving the problem and talking it out loud and not necessarily watching, right? Like, is it a providing them more practice to hear themselves talk their problem out?
2: Um, in my experience, that's how I felt, you know, when I've talked through problems and there will be people who sort of like talk out loud as they, th- as they um, think through things. I do that. Yeah. The th- yeah. yeah. Um, Not yeah. all the time, but
1: I mean, I do find myself walking around the studio. like oh, yeah. Talking to myself. Sometimes. Yeah. I do
2: it too. <laughs> um, it does. It completely changes. I'm, I'm more likely to remember things if I say them out loud, even if I only say it once, I'm more likely to um, be able to solve things or figure out where I'm doing things wrong. If I'm thinking out loud as I'm trying to solve, like work through something. And I think it's because... The uh, this having to actually construct words around it changes the uh, my relationship I have with the experience itself, and the second part is because I hear my own voice that creates an additional cue on top of the one I'm already. Um, addressing that is my problem. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, the answer becomes more available because I have more cues going back to the idea of like memory and everything that memory I can palace. react to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I can react to.
1: I think I still remember which cards lead me to where. Oh yeah.
2: Nice. <laughs> no. I might actually be able to remember sort of from doing it as well, but from your, from you, I mean, yeah. So, so well, let's go ahead and mo- jinx. <laughs> moving on from there. An Eagle. You owe me mean Eagle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from there. One of the great questions I think that was asked um, from some of the people when when we asked them on Facebook was um, sort of the prerequisite skills. So, what do you what is absolutely critical in order to to be able to sort of develop this repertoire and skill set of theory of mind and perspective taking?
1: Yeah, and so I feel like I'm generalizing a little bit, but they're useful nonetheless. Still, uh, I would say language and instructional control. Instructional control comes from the kind of teacher perspective of like uh can a student sit in a chair and look at you and be ready to learn it's kind of the general part of it
2: right so they they have the skill set of sort of being a student yep yeah and And
1: and as much as you're like oh yeah that doesn't like that would be part of like why you even mention that like it's actually largely missing in a lot of classrooms it's been found to just make sure that those things are really tight and ready.
2: Well, and one thing that occurs to me as you were saying that is that might be a prerequisite if you're teaching it to someone who didn't develop it on their own. But because kids can develop this so young, mm-hmm. it's possible that really the, the the main prerequisite here that we're thinking of is language. Yep. And then another prerequisite is that you are able to respond to social cues, Yes. which I mean it's very possible you could develop this if you had some kind of visual impairment. It's very possible you could develop this if you had some kind of hearing impairment, but if you had no cues, visual hearing or otherwise, um, I think it'd be much more difficult to develop language in a way that would allow you to also develop perspective taking. Now, I mean, thinking about the fact that you could learn signs like, um, was done for uh, Helen Keller. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and that could certainly be a case, but again, there, she was, she had the capacity for social interaction. She didn't have all the senses that everyone does for social mm-hmm. interaction. But as long as you have the capacity to um, be able to respond to social cues, then um, you, that's going to be another prerequisite skill that is needed. On, and then the language part will be the other important one, as you said. And then if this is something that needs to be taught, then being a student is, is another one.
1: Yeah. I feel like since it's a newer line of research, that'll be walked out a lot more thoroughly as like the specifics when it came to like a, you know, exactly. I'm trying to think of back to, um, when it comes to teaching reading, right. And like that program we talked about head sprout, right. They knew the prerequisites, so they narrowed it, narrowed it down to three and it was just, boom, this is it. And it's
2: not as clean and tight here. Yeah. So you basically just to sort of summarize what you're saying, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but yeah. Kind of we don't know. We kind of don't know necessarily yeah. what skills are really important for the yeah. prerequisites for this and that we're still discovering, that people are still in the discovery phase of understanding how this develops and what skills need to be there. Yeah,
1: so what I what I was doing with uh, my thesis was we looked at whether or not the levels 3, 4, and 5 were present um, and those instructional control things were there. And if they were but the levels 3, 4, and 5 weren't present, then it was kind of inclusion for, like, hey, maybe we, we can teach you this.
2: Right? Ah, got it.
1: Um, but they did have a general language repertoire that wasn't measured, but was there, um, right?
2: Relatively easy to assess. I mean, there's probably like a more systematic ass- assessment, but... If someone is lacking a language repertoire, you'd usually know pretty quickly.
1: Yep. Younger students that I've interacted with uh, that didn't quite have that language repertoire like fully there yet. And again, I don't know exactly what the differences were there other than you could feel it in the moment. <laughs> 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 weren't ready and it was hard for us to actually teach these sort of things. So yeah, I feel like they could be walked out more. Um, but the general procedure uh, is essentially really trying to get at teaching the IU distinction. That's kind of the core, I'd say, right? Would right. you agree?
2: Well, I think that's that's one of the most foundational L- components of, like, before you build at those levels, like, you have to be able to distinguish between there is a me and there's a me different from those others around me.
1: Uh-huh. I- and bringing in other areas of research, it's just largely a, a function, it seems, of generally just talking a lot about those different things, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The more that those things are talked about, the more this develops, the easier it is. Um, Obviously, there's different uh, contextual cues and practice that you need to be able to um, acquire. But at the core, IU, that's the main distinction.
2: Yeah, and then I think... It was, uh, as you pointed out, McHugh, um, who sort of found that you can break this into what are the sort of temporal and spatial relations that exist for a person that would make them uh, as a distinct, unique item in the universe. And there's me versus everyone else, so the Mm I, you. There's here versus everywhere else, so they called the here, there. And then there's now versus every other time, which uh, I called the now, then. And those are sort of the three domains. And now that doesn't necessarily get at the level of complexity of thinking I wanna say complexity, but the the kind of implications of this of like how would that person feel if they stubbed their toe? Yeah. Right. Like that's not really that's not directly inside of IU here, there, now, then, Mm -hmm. but it is as an implication of like, here is not there. That person is not me. And the experience that they're having is not the experience I'm having, which is sort of an IU thing as well. Yeah.
1: So yeah, Louise McHugh, she like formalized this protocol. um, But I think it dates back to Dr. Hayes's spirituality article. Oh, does it? Yeah. I think that's where it was like first kind of good. And it's like feet at least. Yeah. and yeah, so I'm always interested in, like, how do you use this stuff? And she was starting to really walk that out. So there was, yeah, the general idea here is that these are things that you can't physically touch, right? Like I can't put my finger on like them like I could like this coffee mug. right? Yeah. I can't um, like
2: grab the the IU perspective of you and like move it so you can see the right thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: like when I say here, that is your there. Right. right. Yeah. Totally different. Exactly. Your here, here's my there.
2: Which and is here, hard. Like, that's difficult. That's difficult to, like, think about. I uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> I the same thing repeatedly <laughs> <trying>. right there. <laughs> right. No, but <laughs> when, when I say, like, where are you from? You're not hearing the word I. You hear the word you, and when you use the word you, it relates to me. Yeah, but yeah. when you hear the word you, it relates to you. So you yeah. have to like be able to make that kind of a distinction, mm-hmm. which is a lot more complex than it maybe feels like it should be, but it like it is like it, that, that word means something different when you say it from when you hear it Yep. and that um, being able to react to when I hear this coming at me, the, mm-hmm. the, you is coming into my ear versus the, you is leaving my mouth mm-hmm. that the response that is expected is different.
1: Yep. So, yeah. So that's your basis is those things. And then they're used in either simple reversals or you kind of like add complexities to these, I guess I'm getting at. Yeah. So uh, I have a pink pop filter in front of my uh, microphone while we're recording right now. Yep. And uh, Abraham uses a black one. So I could say, Abraham, what sort of uh, pop filter do you have? Black. Perfect. That's a simple relation. You just like. Uh, there was no complexities at it. Let's say it that way, but I could say if I were you and you were me, what color pop filter would you have?
2: Uh, pink.
1: Okay, perfect. So that's a reverse one, right? Yeah. Now, if I want to add more complexity, let's say yesterday we were sitting in different chairs. We're sitting in the opposite chairs. Yep. So yesterday Scott was using the pink pop filter. Today he's using the black one, right? But now it's today. So time travel with me real quick. Yeah. I could say if I were you and you were me and yesterday were today and today was yesterday, what color
2: pop filter would you have? black yes <laughs> <laughs> because you switched it twice yes so if yesterday was today then i'd be on pink but um, because we then switched p- bodies basically yep. yeah um, i'm back to the black one yes and um, then and they can just keep going because it'd be like if i were you and you were me and here were there and there were here and now we're then and then we're now yes and you've got three reversals in there yes so you'd be you'd be black yes exactly <laughs> i'd use the black pop filter yes
1: um and so obviously it seems like this gets a little out of control and you're like, does this really bring into the real world and the arguments? Yes. Um, but the extent to how much, and I would say generally my understanding of all this was, uh, I enjoyed it. Research wasn't necessarily my calling I think in life, okay. um, but I value the, the I value it so much. Yeah. Um, it's just not my perfection. So I surround people around me like that are really good at that and I aid in other ways. Um, and then, other thing that came from this like research line was uh the context in which it's occurring seems really important so that iu here there now then is a good framework but um i really need to practice it with things that really mean something to you as abraham right i think that's i think that's a key part of it and where i see some of the research heading
2: yeah And, you know, some of the fun things that I've experienced in some of the teaching of this, um, it it does build on those levels and it's sort of like it would take something like uh, I'm going to go back to one that doesn't require visual because we're not a visual medium right (laughs) now (laughs) Um, of like, let's say that. Have you ever been to Lincoln, Nebraska? No. Okay. uh, Do you know what it's like there? No. Do I know what it's like there? Yeah. Why do I know what it's like there? Because you live there. Um, So do I know what it's like in Tonopah?
1: Uh, probably by driving through. Okay. Do I know what it's like to live in Tonopah? Nope. Not at all. Why not? Because you've never lived there.
2: What if I were you? Would I know what it was like there? You would. So basically you're just going through in as, as many flexible, different ways as you can asking questions that have implications. There's another one that's really fun. That's sort of like, so if I'm on a beach in Mexico and you're in the North pole, what kind of clothes are you wearing? I'm wearing a parka. Am I wearing a parka? No. What am I going to be wearing? You're
1: going to be wearing your bathing suit. Perfect. Are
2: you wearing a bathing suit where you are?
1: Uh, if I am, it's under my parka.
2: Okay. Uh, why would but you not, not just be wearing a bathing suit? Because it's cold outside. But what if I were in the North pole, would I be wearing a bathing suit still?
1: Uh, I would hope you have a park on top of Okay. because it's cold.
2: Um, and if you were me, would you be wearing your parka still?
1: Yes. If you're in the North pole.
2: But if you were, okay, sorry. Yeah, if I was still in Mexico. <laughs> no, I would not. Right. And so and that's, I don't know
1: why I said parka.
2: I don't But yeah, a coat. Yeah. A coat. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically again, the same idea of, um, you just really flexibly present those um, situations of um that have implications. and you sort of build on them, you know, you start with something really simple of like, what can I see mm-hmm. of like, and you'll have, you'll hold it up and say, like, oh, can you see the thing that I'm holding? And then move it now. Can you see it? But like um, it's behind a barrier where, but can I see it? Yeah. Um, and then you don't even include those reversals initially. Yeah. You just want to get through the very basic, like, what do you know? What do I know? Yeah. Sort of stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can't just like go into the complexities like we talked about
2: overnight. Exactly. My thesis, at least, I worked for three months on. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what's, what's impressive about this is how... When this starts to develop, it's not just the fact that they can answer the questions directly, but they actually start to respond to other social situations more appropriately because they are able to put themselves in the, you know, in the position of the people yeah. that they're interacting yeah, with. Yeah, it in has a real way. world outcomes. Right. Like we
1: we're talking about with assessments, like yeah, does it actually get you somewhere?
2: Right. And yeah. there is something that happens so often of teaching people where, and there's a lot of criticism about that, like rote memorization. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, especially in things that should be a little bit more flexible, that is a fair criticism. And what's interesting about... Um learning in this particular way is that it starts to, they pick up on like the nuances of things, right? It's not just the, um, like I can respond to, like, let's say we're teaching someone like language and we're to teach them to say hi. Yeah. It's just that it's not an automatic response of see someone say, oh, hi. Like you just have to do that because that was how what you were trained to do essentially. Mm-hmm. It's the like, oh, I see someone else. Do they see me? Now they see me, now I wave. And we and we see that that sort of thing develops with that simple teaching of, um, of, those exercises of building through the, the perspective taking stuff, which is, I mean, that's the coolest thing.
1: Yeah. Perfect. What's next? I
2: think we'll wrap it up, man. Okay. No so unless you want to go over your thesis stuff again? No, no, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> just
1: like flashbacks to thesis. <laughs> I'm kidding. I enjoyed it. Um, just everyone's, anyone's gone through that. It's just
2: a lot of work. Yeah. Um, it's like dissertations, right? Uh, yeah. I don't like also talk about my thesis very much.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, Okay, I want to make sure we hit everybody's comments real, real quick. I think we hit Abby's comment. Yeah, there are some um, things on teaching. here that
2: we probably won't get to all that much. We definitely hit Matt Sicoria's comments. We talked a little bit about problem solving, yep. um,
1: which and Melissa posted. We did have
2: everyone, yeah, because then it's prerequisites. Yeah,
1: and Dog back in uh, Norway was asking about talk about problem solving. So, yeah, I think we did justice. Suzanne, there's prerequisites. It. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Try to do justice on that. Um, I hope you dig it. Yeah. (laughs) Nailed
2: it. So take home points. I think now one thing that happens is I think perspective taking is really cool. And I think like, like you, I agree. Like, this is a really neat thing. It's one, I, I like studying it. I like to learn more about it. I like that people are pursuing this. I like that people are interested in, in teaching it. Yes. I think that I am concerned when I hear the overzealous approaches as like, is per- can perspective taking save the world? Yeah. And I mean, the, the most diplomatic answer I think you can give is, I don't know. And I think the most practical answer we can say is probably not. You yeah. know, I think that there are a lot of things that, having better perspective taking repertoires would help with yeah and they would help people both in their own lives and how they interact with others and how they generally show up in the world yep and at the same time saying like that there are a lot of problems that we have that we we want to go out and sort of fix you yep.
1: know? yeah so i've in the past when i like first stumbled across it and I was like this needs to be my thesis like i was like this will save the world like yeah. this like i've had that perspective um, but i i realized Um, one thing that's helped is traveling. Like the more experiences and things you can relate to, the easier it is to start to take those perspectives. Right. Yeah. And so someone, uh, that hasn't traveled as much as others. Um, I feel like that's maybe something you can relate to when you're talking to someone. Like it's easier if you're, uh, if you've traveled to places other people haven't, you have one of those conversations. I feel like you can realize like, Oh, that shared history. Right. Yeah. And those things that you can relate to really matter. And so, I guess to bring it back into this, it's not going to solve the world on its own, but it could be a part of the piece that solves the world. Yes, I love that. That's a great way of saying it.
2: Um, Another one to hit is to wrap up that point we made earlier about the fact that being... Perspective taking does not mean that you're just agreeing with people mm-hmm. and other people doing good perspective taking mean does not mean that they are just agreeing with you. Yeah. Right. There's it's, it's understanding where they're coming from. You don't have to agree. It's being like, Hey, I, I get, I, I can put myself in your position. I get it. And mm-hmm. I still think you're wrong. Like yep. that's okay. Like yeah. that's an okay place to be. Yeah, We have different motives and different history and different, you know, learning about things that yep. is going to change how we think about that.
0: Yep.
1: And we often run into those sort of things. One thing's, uh, the voting system, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Abraham and I really run into that. Yes. Um, that,
2: that was a thing that came up between us <laughs> position on voting. And it still does.
1: It'll come up in every election cycle for always. I think <laughs> <Positive>. <laughs> one one last point to take home would be I think that it underlies a lot of important things. I don't think again it's like the thing that's driving these, but when it comes to really solid uh, empathy, problem solving, ethical approaches, it seems to be really important. Um, what more I can say about that right now, definitively based on science and psychology, I don't know.
2: <laughs> I, I think that's fair. You know, it, yeah. this is one of those things where. I mean, most people do develop some element of this, and it, it shows up for them in most, in some part of their lives For the most part, mm-hmm. like, it'd be very difficult for us to interact socially if we were all, if most people were like completely una- unable to yeah. do this. So this is gonna be a part of our experiences of going through life and getting through things, and it is implicated in things like ethics and empathy and problem solving, and even things that are sort of big, like running a business and raising a family and stuff like that that this, this plays a part in all of that. So at the same time, like there are other things out there, but this is, it's a really cool topic. I hope that we did sort of justice for it to you. Who's a listener out there. If you have some thoughts on this, we'd love to hear from you. Um, I, it, it's really cool. And there's a lot more to talk about, but we really wanted to basically be able to say like, this is what it kind of is, you know, and not necessarily pick apart study by study and go through them, but really be able to lay out as thoroughly as possible what it yeah. is so that we've we'd sort of have that as something that you can refer to
1: perfect all right you got no that's it cool, man. um yeah we're good to go i guess this is ryan O. this is abraham we're out
4: you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by ABAI's disseminating behavior analysis special interest group and our amazing listeners if you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at wwdwwdpodcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to wwdwwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O., and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Broussier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.